Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm the host, Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you have listened to the podcast, especially lately, you know that I have been trying to talk to someone cool in every state who has run for office or is running for office to learn their experiences and show why we need good people to run all across this country. Um, I'm at nearly every state, and there's 50 of them. But just because there's 50 states doesn't mean that's all of America. And today I'm really excited to talk to someone who, like me, um, it has gone going through the YEO network, Young Elected Officials. Um, he's a bright star in politics, um, but he's not representing any state yet, though that may change, hopefully. Um, he is uh, representing Washington, D.C. He's got some really good things to say about the things happening there, and I think it's going to be a pretty enlightening conversation. Who is this? It's Marcus Batchelor. Uh, so I am excited to talk to him and share him with the world. Marcus, thank you for calling in. I know you've been very busy. Yeah, no, Tony, I really appreciate it. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got less than eighty days until election day now, and so you know we're we're spending every moment we can uh, just you know talking to as many folks as, as we can, touching as many voters as we can, or at least virtually. Uh, given the pandemic and then you know as you said we share a, a common membership uh, a forever membership in the YL network uh, and so I currently represent uh, my ward ward 8 here in DC on the state board of education so on top of campaigning also preparing you know our communities and our students for a return to what will be virtual learning uh, at least through the through the first few months of the school year uh, and just trying to make sure all of our students are are supported so yes yeah, it's, it's a pretty busy time here in dc yeah i am sure and it's a stressful time i am a council member so i don't like for borough government so i am not a school board member really value our school board who's making these tough decisions it's a tough time to be doing any education work isn't it no it is uh you know it's it's both uh, tough because we have a responsibility to really respond immediately to what's happening in the crisis and make sure that we're protecting the health and safety of our educators and our students and their families um but you know i think there's also a very real recovery ahead of us which means that you know you know, there are very real impacts that families will have no matter what we do because of this pandemic. And so really making sure we make school a place where, you know, not only uh, uh, students can get a quality education in whatever, uh, you know, posture they're learning, um, but that we also provide them with the mental health supports from this very difficult episode uh, in our history and in our communities, uh, and that we also protect their, their health, their physical health. And so all of that's top of mind for us. And then beyond that, I think we've got a real opportunity to reimagine what education looks like, um, you know, a once-in-a-generation opportunity, quite frankly, uh, to do that. And so, you know, the silver lining in all of this is that we, you know, we'll be able, hopefully, as a city, and, and you know, I'm pushing to do this here in D.C. to really build the type of equity, um, you know, that, that's been missing in our education system and make sure that all of our students are supported in whatever way they learn or, or whatever zip code they live in. So, so I'm, I'm looking forward to those conversations in the months to come as well. And we'll get into some of your, your background before, but you're talking about equity in education, something I find very important because I know I live in a good school district across the bridge is also a good school district but not as good or and with less um 
equitable resources and it's just i can walk there um and i met i know washington dc for various reasons is a district with a lot of inequality right yeah absolutely and not just educationally i mean but the disparity um in the edu- in the academic outcomes of uh, our black and brown students uh compared to their white peers and i should mention uh, the D.C. is close to half African-American, over half of our school-aged children are, are black in this city. And so when we talk about, you know, really, uh, you know, providing for, for those students, our city historically has done a, a really bad job. And we have, we've had some of the largest gaps uh, in terms of academic outcomes in the country, um, and especially compared to other urban school districts, um, our size. But then, you know, when it comes to, but those inequalities, I think, uh, mirror the deep inequalities we have economically between black and white residents, where over the last 15 years, uh, you know, white household incomes have skyrocketed in a city where on average people make over $100,000 a year, whereas black residents on average, your average household is bringing in $45,000 a year, which is at almost the same level those households were bringing in during the 2008 financial crisis. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of work to do to raise the economic floor for folks, um, and especially black residents who are just bearing the brunt of, uh, of I think, an imbalanced level of progress in our city. And I know that people from outside of the district, they look at Washington, D.C., and their view of things are contractors, politicians, lobbyists, etc. And those people live there, of course. Um, But a lot of those people who, you know, make their money off of politics, they don't live in D.C., right? They live in Virginia, they live in Maryland, so that wealth doesn't necessarily trickle down to the needs of the city. Right. Well, and, and I'll say this, you know, I think, you know, D.C., I think, is is uh, such a unique place. One, yeah, we're not just the federal city or, or kind of the quote-unquote Washington that people identify from far, you know, other far reaches of the country uh, as kind of this, you know, purely political jurisdiction. We're a community of neighbors and of neighborhoods. You know, mm-hmm. we're 705,000 residents more than the populations of Vermont and Wyoming. Uh, we have a 16 uh, and a half billion dollar budget, which has been balanced every year for almost two decades. Uh, our, our, you know, we have a triple A bond rating, and not just because of uh, the federal money we get, which is on par with what other states get from the federal government, and really not a, a much larger investment, but from locally raised tax dollars from quite frankly, what what is, uh, by and large, um, and it's what we're trying to protect here in the city, a thriving black middle class that was built during the 80s and 90s uh, under the leadership of, of figures like Marion Barry, who gets a bad rap, but created uh, a, a burgeoning black middle class, many of which uh, are, are contributing to our positively to our communities today. So, so, you know, that, I think, is, is what we're trying to protect here. Uh, but, yeah, we are, just like everybody else, a community uh, with our problems, but with the right to, you know, have uh, equal representation. And I know we'll talk about D.C. statehood in a bit. Yeah, you know, I think about all the stuff that's happening there. And what you're talking, too, with people coming from out of the country, I mean, out of the country, out of the district, um, a lot of those people I know from politics, younger people come there, and they're already 
at some level of wealth, right? Like, um, friends of mine who moved to D.C., maybe they got an, an unpaid internship in a con- senator's office or something like that, and they're able to do that because their parents can pay for them to do it. They can go to school and their parents, they, they have money, right? Like, so... Right. There's there's an, an almost like an inequality that gets shipped into DC, which isn't intentional, but I'm sure adds to this continuing issue. Yeah, and and market forces are difficult, right? I think you know, you know when I was born uh, here in DC back in the early '90s, right? DC was the crack and murder capital of the world. Um, you know, we had you know somewhere close to uh, you know over 400 homicides a year uh, in our city including um, you know uh, you know a broad base of residents were consumed by by the crack epidemic that was also ravaging the nation but by many metrics DC was the worst and we're a far reach uh, from from where we used to be back then uh, our, our financial situation was in the tanks mm-hmm. uh, like I said we're now an economically prosperous city but that does come with some unintended consequences and the fact is you know the market forces that have driven people into our city uh, have also driven far too many people out uh, since uh, the since the early 2010s uh, we've uh, displaced close to uh, 20,000 black residents uh, in this city um, uh, and that's somewhere close to one in four of all the black residents who've been displaced from urban centers across the country during that time period and so you know when you think about D.C., which had recently been categorized as the most intensely gentrifying um, uh, community in, in the nation, it means that we've got to do better as leaders to make sure that long-term residents can stay in place, can afford to live here as rents go up, but income don't in so many regards. And so that's a lot of the critical work that's ahead of us as a city so that we can really hold off that flood of, of uh, displacement that we're seeing right now. So that's a lot of what's happening now, but let's talk about you. Um, yeah. You are The Bachelor, which is just, you know, a, you have a good name for this, right? Like, there's a few oh, people yeah. I've talked to who have a good name for politics. Um, but um, when did, when, if you live in D.C., are you just politically aware from birth? Like, when you're in the, when you're in the hospital and like you just born do the doctors kind of give you a rundown of what's going on do they put like a newspaper in with you um what have you always been politically aware and, and involved yeah so i mean no is probably the answer but you know i think i got into um politics because i really gained through both life experience uh, but also just through good example, really the value of, of public service and dedication uh, to community. Uh, you know, I, you know, have, being in D.C. to a certain degree does give you a bit of a front row seat, uh, but it's, you know, it's not uh, in so many regards something that looks very attractive, right? I, you know, we talked about earlier, 
D.C. really being in an uh, in an unfair and undemocratic relationship with a federal Congress. Many of representatives stream in from across the country and have more authority over what happens in our neighborhoods than some of our elected representatives do. And so, you know, that that sense of political injustice actually drove me uh, to become an activist and get into activism as a student. Uh, I uh, co-founded the uh, D.C. Statehood Student Association and became an activist for D.C. Statehood as a student because I believed that that was just generally um, unfair, that I could be born in this country and be asked to uh, assume all the responsibilities of citizenship with far too little of the rewards that everybody else uh, was reaping around the country. And so, you know, two months after my 18th birthday, I got arrested in my first act of civil disobedience outside the White House protesting at the time the Obama administration, believe it or not, because in the most recent budget deal, uh, they had uh, traded passage for the budget with congressional Republicans for a rider in that budget that actually prevented D.C. from spending locally raised tax dollars on reproductive health and abortions for low-income women. And so, you know, we, we, you know, I got into activism in that way, really being inspired by so many mentors I had in my community and the quiet service of folks like my mom, who's a home health aide, and my grandfather, who worked for 40 years at, at a grocery store at Safeway. Um, and so, you know, that really drove me into into activism and into public service. Uh, and six years ago, I decided to run for office because I thought that those experiences working in nonprofit and on the ground, but all of these rich lived experiences that have shaped my upbringing could really be a benefit to the conversations that were happening in those spaces. And it's one of the same reasons that, you know, after serving six years, one, two as an advisory neighborhood commissioner and four on the state board, that I'm running for the council this fall uh, to really to really take that level of service to the next level. So what is the next level? Um, I think people probably don't think about what you can do in that role in DC, you know, you're running for you're running at large. Um, you know, yeah. I live outside of Philadelphia. I know what the relationship the city council has to the state of Pennsylvania. How, how important Pennsylvania, Philadelphia is, even though a lot of legislators in Pennsylvania try and pretend that Philly doesn't exist. Um, so, but it's different in DC. What what are the things? What what are the the issues that you can provide a solution to if you're in office in DC? Yeah, so D.C. has only had a home, what we call our home rule government uh, for about 40 years. Um, that's our elected mayor and, and council. Before that, uh, the city was run by a panel of, uh, of uh, council commissioners that were actually appointed by the president of the United States. And so they actually ran the function of the city. Oh, can so, you imagine if uh, it was like council, that today? Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, I and it's a horror story. I mean, but just even the but even in our current partial home rule stature, right? The president has uh, more authority over what happens in our neighborhood than, say, for Pennsylvania. For instance, while we have partial home rule, our mayor does not have authority over our local national guard. So when the national guard uh, uh, and and other federal agencies are, for instance, um, you know, sick pretty much on peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park, 
that you know that imbalance in in the influence we have over what happens inside our borders feels very real. Um, but but yeah, I mean the the council is our is our what I like to call our state legislature, and I say that because. Unlike, uh, you know, typical city councils, uh, the council has a authority over a broader array of issues that would be ceded to something comparable to a county and state government. Uh, so again, the, our council has uh, has the power of the purse for our entire um, uh, government. Uh, the mayor presents a budget. The council approves it. Um, and so on issues about, again, wielding a $16 billion budget, which is larger than many states, we're talking about deep investment uh, in our schools, deep investment in housing, uh, in, uh, in uh, transportation. Uh, you know, our mayor, for instance, has similar authority to what would be a state governor um, because of just a broad array of issues that we that they have direct authority over that would typically be split up along three levels of government. So, they, yeah, that um, you know that the the ability as a council member and especially as one elected citywide to really drive the conversation. Um, and, and direct resources to those things that really touch people's lives is, is something I'm really excited about. It's, it is really exciting to be in city government uh, or local government, and I encourage anyone who's listening, um, especially because a lot of those elections are in 2021, to consider running for office wherever you are um, because that's where you can be hands-on, right? Like that's... Absolutely. It's part Absolutely. of the That's allure. exactly where the rubber meets the road. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So, um, what are some of the... Obviously, D.C. has its own issues. Um, but what are some of the, the issues that when you're talking to people um, that they're concerned about? Are they the same things they've always been concerned about? Or are there new concerns um, that you think have come up that you might be uniquely qualified to do, especially as a younger person in office? Yeah, so, you know, I think this pandemic, um, both the, the COVID pandemic, but quite frankly, this epidemic of, of race-based violence in our country uh, has given us a unique opportunity to center those issues in the race. But we've been talking about those for years because they're literally the central issues happening in our city. Uh, COVID and and what has happened in light of the murder of George Floyd has really just uh, opened those those issues wide uh, for more people to see. Uh, but it's yeah, for sure, it's about making sure uh, that as we recover, we do those things that will correct right a future emergency like this from disproportionately impacting communities that have been left furthest behind. Uh, DC is under half. Um, black, um, but make up close to 80% of the infections and deaths associated with COVID here in the city. Um, and it's because where most of our black native uh, uh, Washingtonians live, which is east of the Anacostia River, uh, there's, there's a, a terrible health system. Uh, it's the city's only public hospital uh, where, mo- where mothers in an area of the city with the highest infant and maternal mortality rates can't even deliver babies. Um, and so we've got to 
moving out of this really create a healthcare system that meets the needs of every resident and attacks chronic disease where we let it run rampant and communities where we let it run rampant. Um, but it's also, again, like we talked about earlier, that deep investment in education and reimagining education so that it better uh, serves every student. It's about affordable housing, especially in a pandemic, how we make sure that we connect people to permanent supportive housing uh, with dignity that protects their health and safety uh, and ends chronic homelessness in our city, which is a huge problem, uh, even among families uh, here in the city. Uh, so we've got to do a better job at that. And then the last thing I say uh, is that while the COVID crisis has been impacting our community, uh, the, the black community, especially in D.C. in a disproportionate way, so has the epidemic of gun violence. Mm -hmm. um, and we are actually, we actually have a 40% uh, increase in homicides uh, year to date uh, than we did uh, uh, last year. Um, and it's because we're not be meeting the basic needs of the resident of residents left furthest behind, and we're not attacking gun violence at its source, which is poverty, but we're attacking it with its symptoms, which is over-policing uh, and doing those things that actually diminish the sense of safety in communities where we want to build it. So we're going to talk about that, too, and how we, how we reimagine how we reimagine both public safety and policing to better serve uh, residents who need it. You know, I, I've talked with a number of people, uh, especially in, well, in city and state government, who when they do something, they know it could be an example for what could be done in other states or local right. governments. Um, policing yep. is such an issue now. But it while it seems like to be at the forefront because of the George Floyd murders, and then people I know on the right, friends of mine, will post things like, oh, the crime rate is going up in Chicago, or crime in D.C. is so bad... Um, and so they, they almost seem to misplace like, oh, well, defunding police can't work even though no one's defunded any police, <laughs> um, right? Like budgets right. haven't been passed and, to do that. Um, wh right. what, what can and, we do to build that trust? That, and... Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, here's what I'll say on top of that, right? Uh, let's think about, um, you know, the narrative that defunding police or redirecting that funding to things that are more individual and community focused, um, saying that that will actually have an increase in crime. I'd just like to give people this thought that D.C., for instance, spends half a billion dollars on policing and corrections, right? Half a billion dollars just on policing and corrections. Uh, two fiscal years ago, um, and that's probably still true today, it was more than we spent on programs related to uh, job training, youth, and mental health combined, right? Now, and, and at the same time, right, where there was a national call uh, to reinvest in communities to build truly public safety, the city council gave the Metropolitan Police Department a budget increase this fiscal year in the middle of a pandemic and actually decreased the amount of funding we were given to community-based violence prevention programs. Uh, and we're see and we'll, and while we won't while we haven't seen the impact of that yet, what we have seen the impact of is 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 us investing in the wrong things, right? My community here in Congress Heights is one of the most over-policed in the city, um, and it's still also one of the unsafest. Um, and if you live in a, if you live at the inverse of that, you know the wealthiest 
safest and safest communities in any city around the country don't say that they are that way because they have the city's best police patrols. It's because they have more opportunity. The economic floor is higher. They have mm-hmm. access to affordable housing and living wage work, right? That Those are the things that we know actually increase safety. And if we're investing more in the symptom than in the solution, uh, then I think we see the core of our problem. Yeah, I get it. I um I know that a lot of other people right now are saying like, "Oh, you say that that's what the the, the symptoms. I agree we should increase the uh, economic situation for people, but you can't just hope for that. Like if you if you invest in those things, then, you know, you you can't do that without assuring safety, but it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation, right? And they're much more willing, much more eager to focus on the chicken without figuring out where the egg came from. Right, and on, but even on top of that, right, even if we assumed that more police on our streets would actually, um, at least in the interim, protect more people from violent crime, D.C. residents per capita um, have, is there more residents to police officers per capita in Washington, D.C. than any city or state in the nation? Mm-hmm. We have more police and more police jurisdictions operating here. And if that were the, if that hypothesis which was true, Washington, D.C. should be one of the safest countries in America, except, no, we're the most inequitable when it comes to race and income and academic attainment, and we see the byproduct of that. So, so even if it was true that more police on the streets would solve the problem, Washington, D.C. is a prime example of that just not being the case. Yeah, and I think that people, especially white people, privileged white people, and I'm, a, you know, I'm one of them, um, you know, who are in the suburbs or, um, you know, and doing well, they look at it as, well, if you have shootings in your area, don't you feel better that you have more police? But I'm at, how do people feel when they are, as you said, over-policed? Like, if you're a neighborhood there um, and they see police all the time, does that sometimes create a tension that may not need to be there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's it's a relationship, right, that is supposed to that is supposed to again protect the safety and again in, you know, not just examples like George Floyd, but in that fiscal year a couple of years ago where I told you that we had spent all this money on policing and very little on the things that we know made people safer, the Metropolitan Police Department also killed three black men in its custody. And so and so when we talk about, you know, not just the sense of unsafety that comes uh, with some of these police interactions, but the reality of unsafety because of their overpresence in communities like the ones that look like mine, we're seeing the very real consequences that that has. And, and in, in the most egregious cases, those consequences are life and death. Um, and so And so it does create a real sense um, of unsafety, but it also just doesn't keep us safer. You know, the, on the corners where we have, right, the police patrols or the police cars sitting on every corner, there are still shootings, right, in broad daylight. Um, and if we don't tackle the issues that, one, bring those illegal guns in a jurisdiction with some of the strictest gun laws in the country, those laws that bring, that from surrounding jurisdictions that bring illegal guns onto our streets, and quite frankly, the NRA and the big gun manufacturers that allow it, but, uh, but also 
don't talk about the basic need that's not met that would encourage a 19-year-old, for instance, who was shot last night in my neighborhood, to pick up a gun in the first place, uh, means that, that we're not getting to the, to the core of the issue. Um, and, and no amount of police officers, and quite frankly, uh, no amount of, of you know, positive relationship with law enforcement uh, can cut out what is the cancer um, that, that gun violence is. Um, and so we've, we've got to do more on that and, and really let the police officers that are on the street do their job, which is keeping the peace. It's not being a mental health clinician or a social worker, all of those things we underinvest in and then heap at the, at the feet of the police department. You know, um, also one of the things you mentioned earlier in here and talking on the situation, um, I think about how voters aren't dumb, right? Like, I mean, okay, some are. People are dumb in any situation. There's CEOs who are dumb. There are, you know, but, um, you know, you, you look at people from the outside who are like, wouldn't you want to have more cops in this situation? Because when you're a hammer, you only think of problems as nails, right? Um but voters know what's going on with the budget, right? So if you say, like, voters and residents care about things like health care and infrastructure, um, education, etc. So they know that if your budget is flat and you're investing money in policing, that's all well and good. But that means that money's coming from somewhere else, right? Like, is that the conversation right. that people are having there? Right. I mean, it's the conversation that luckily we are having as a city now is it's saying that the money, you know, we spend more money to incarcerate, um, you know, a teenager for a year than we do to educate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we and if we think about the value add and the long term impact that truly educating a young person uh, right now, then incarcerating them 10 years from now would make on our economy for years to come. We would do it right but for some reason, but, but we've got to have leadership that's willing to say we've got to make those tough decisions right now. And it's not about giving up any temporary sense of safety because our, our unsafest communities aren't getting any safer with what we're doing right now. Um, and so if we know that we've got to do something radically different, both to build safety, but also not keep pouring for generations millions of dollars into these systems that just punish and incarcerate, but don't give people new life or a viable second chance when they fall down, then then we're, we're going to keep spinning our wheels, not just as a city, but as a society. And that's why I'm so glad that there are young people uh, and, quite frankly, activist voices that have been raised in consciousness because of what's happening both because of this pandemic and because of uh, what happened with George Floyd to say that, you know, we just have to reimagine how our systems work so that they work how we intended them to and that we don't keep battling the unintended consequences of a broken system. Um, That does remind me of something a friend of mine was talking to me about today. He was worried about some issue that happened um, with a Black Lives Matter activist and this, the example doesn't matter because by the time this podcast goes up, it will be in a whole different context anyway. Um, but the it seems like the Black Lives Matter movement um, since the murder of George Floyd is very leaderless, right? And it seems like it's a positive thing where it's not like, well, when if we need to talk about Black Lives Matter, we got to call Marcus up. He's the leader, right? Um, what does it mean to see that young people especially 
are just taking charge without waiting their turn to find out who's leading this. Yeah, what well, I mean, it's it's the um, it is the required ingredient for social change, um, and we learn that <clears throat> just through example, right? If we think about, for instance, the passing of John Lewis, who is the who is the last living uh, speaker at the 1963 march on Washington, he spoke at 23 years old, led mm-hmm. the march in Selma at 25, right? If we think about his passing and what that means for a still unfinished movement for social justice and racial equality in in this country, uh, then it was almost a requirement that a new generation of leaders stood up in a time like this. Um, I don't think a time of social unrest that we've probably seen, you know, maybe mildly in 92 after Rodney King, but quite frankly, maybe not since 1968. Um, You know, if, if this was an opportunity for a new generation to step up, uh, they did it, um, and and I think that that's so promising for the work still left undone by those generations, by the civil rights generation that's now passing on. Uh, and what you saw, what you see, is a coalition um, that is building, reminiscent to to the coalition that was built that achieved all those things in the '60s. It's young, uh, but it's also multi generational. It's also multiracial and multi religious. Um, it, it crosses all of the lines of our society and brings people together um, in a way that is powerful. Um, and I think that, you know, our, our society and, and for sure this city uh, will be forever changed by that. Um, and, I, you know, I, my hope is to really carry those hopes and that vision um, for what we can be um, uh, to the council. And, you know, as you talk about it, um... I think about when you're in union negotiations, and I've been involved in that a bit, and when you're doing that, you're like, well, we know we got to talk to these three guys, they're putting in things in the contract, and, you know, if we can make them happy, they'll make everyone else happy, or, um, and that's not a, a knock on unions, I'm pro-union, they just mean, like, a lot of the time there's a leader, whether it's in a union, or you're talking to a legislator, and if we get Pete on board, well, then we don't need the people that live in this district. We got Pete. The broad-based support and movement with Black Lives Matter means that any sort of legislative solution, um, you know, it seems like it can't be small potatoes, right? It has got to be something that is constantly moving and um, gets broad-based support or it's not it's not something that can just get Marcus's support. It's gotta be something that the people support. And that's scary to a lot of people, but it's also probably what will get long term results. Yeah, it's the it's the only thing that will. Um, you know, a broad coalition of, of folks saying, you know, that that we won't be pacified anymore. Um, that on issues, right, like George Floyd, uh, you know, not only do we remember George Floyd, but we remember when you told us the same thing when it was Trayvon Martin in 2012. Uh, we, you know, we were told the same thing when it was Rodney King in 92. Uh, we were told the same thing when it was Emmett Till in 1955, right? And now there are folks who are saying that time is up, right, for, for us being pacified on issues critical to justice and not just injustice impacting one community but in the you know in the words of martin luther king really impacting us all um and and so and and we're saying that we won't be pacified 
um, and that we're gonna and that we're seeking big structural change, right? That that can't be tokenized, that can't be one off, but that has to be lasting and systemic. And and I think that that's that's so powerful. And I just don't see how we don't get you know. In, I I don't see a situation where we get nothing out of this, which is really promising. Right, and not only can we not get nothing, but we can't only get something and. You know, I, I know from there's a really good book called The Red and the Blue by Steve Kornacki about the rise of partisan politics in the 80s and 90s, especially. Uh, Newt Gingrich just kind of kept building and building and building Republican power, and it worked. Right. And there's right. no reason why we can't build that power around social justice and keep building and building and building with with not a, right. with no end in sight. Right. Oh, no, and absolutely. But we've got to invest in it right now. You know, while I um, am not an admirer of Newt Gingrich, what he realized with the new American majority was that was that it had to be gradual and it had to be built over time. And so it wasn't that all of a sudden, right, these Republicans just started started showing up in Congress. They were showing up years before on school boards and city councils and state houses. Right. Uh, and, and, and that they, they became elected prosecutors. Right. All of those things. They got elected judges. Right. The, all of those things made an impact uh, and, and made that groundswell uh, and, quite frankly, hijacking of American democracy possible. And if we do the inverse. Right. If if the old hand of the progressive movement um, and, quite frankly, the hands that have excluded young voices or have. Uh, haven't centered voices of color, if we do those things right now to build that coalition, not just right in protest, but in power on city councils and school boards and all of those things that matter now, right, the majority and, and, the, and, the, uh, and the, the decisions will trickle up, right, that groundswell will trickle up into something that can be more positive for society. And so I think in 2020 and in the cycles to come, hopefully we'll see a sustained effort um, to do that. But I'm also proud of what we're doing right now, thinking about people like Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones and Corey Bush who will be joining the squad, right, in Congress from, from 2018. You know, that that's it's a, it's, a, it's a really powerful moment in our history, and so I'm just excited to, one, be a part of it, but just to witness it. Yeah, and one of the exciting things about Cory Bush to me, um, and I only somewhat followed it this year, but is that she lost and didn't give up. And I think that's a really important lesson for anyone right. in this movement. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Um, I've lost my fair share and won some good ones too. But, it is, I mean, it's all about making sure you know what your why is uh, and, and knowing the power of your own voice. Because, you know, if my biography or my background or where I live in this city uh, had, you know, really defined me in the stereotype, right, then I, would, I should be about the belief that I have no place even thinking about running for the council uh, of the district. But, right, it's because of knowing what your values are and knowing that they're worth fighting for um, that... It, that has to be the reason to push you forward and that even when you fall down, not only if you lose an election, but you lose that vote on the council or, uh, you know, uh, you know, you lose that policy fight uh, that you keep going because it's, you know, it's about not just, you know, finishing a race, but passing a baton. And the further you get, the easier it gets for those who come after you. Totally. Um, so, Marcus, I've one, I, I lament the fact that i can't hang out with people and i wish that 
you could just come over and we could have beer in Bridgeport right now, or I could be there and we could have a beer. Right. Um, or Diet Coke, right. which I drink too much of, and it makes me think I'm the president. Um, so, but um, the podcast is called You Should Run. You have a very unique perspective on um, why a diverse group of people, especially young people, should run for office. So as we end here, what would your words of encouragement be to the next generation that might be thinking of running um, in 2021, 2022, and beyond. Yeah, I mean, you should run right now because it's our time, because now the moment calls uh, for a new generation of leaders uh, to carry forward those battles that those who came before us uh, are, are, are counting on us to carry forward. Uh, and it also counts for the bold new ideas that are going to renew our society and make sure it works uh, for more of us, and not just more of us, but for all of us. Uh, and that your voice matters, that your lived experience um, matters, that you don't have to be the most well-spoken uh, or the most educated or the, uh, uh, you know, uh, most, uh, you know, astute uh, to make your voice heard. Um, and, and that has to be um, at the center of, of all of your experiences and the reason uh, that you decide to run. That's terrific. I really appreciate it. Um, finally, if people are interested in, in learning more about you and following you, how can they follow you, especially on social media? Yeah, so you, uh, everyone can follow me on all platforms at Marcus for DC, M A R K U S F O R D C. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, we're uh, on Twitter and Instagram and also on Facebook. So, we'd love to engage with folks. And, uh, obviously, both as a member of the Young Elected Officials Network, but also as a staff member there, um, I'm more than happy to, to talk to anybody who's thinking about running um, or who wants to join the, the Young Elected Officials Network uh, to make sure that we, we build that progressive venture across the country. Well, I, I just want to end here also mentioning a few weeks ago, I talked to Rosemary Ketchum, a transgender woman who won in West Virginia, making history. 24 years old, and as soon as I talked to her, I said, are you in YEO yet? She said, I don't, what's YEO? And got her hooked up with um, Ashley Van Orney and uh, Spencer up in Maine, and now she's yeah. very active in things that she might not have been. It's not my re it's not because okay. of me, it's because of her amazing story and the fact that she ran for office. Yeah, no, if you're young and elected and progressive, go to yeonetwork.org slash join and sign up and join us. You should definitely do that. I did that. I'm still, thankfully, a member, even though now I'm old. Uh, so, um, <laughs> Always a member. <laughs> so, so I really appreciate it again. Uh, thank you. Everyone follow Marcus on social media, and maybe you should run for office too, and maybe Marcus will let me know about some other YEOs um, who can share their experience in the days and weeks to come. So thank you, and best of luck, Marcus. Absolutely. Thanks. Appreciate you, Tony. Thanks so much.